Hello everybody and welcome to tonight's MHTV. I'm here with my colleague Nikki Lambert who will introduce herself in a minute and tonight we're talking about how can nurses and nurses best respond to COVID but also how can nurses respond to other public protection issues as well. So I'm going to hand you over to Nikki who's covering social media and then over to our guest for some introductions. I am. Hello, everybody. Nice to see you guys. Um, what we're going to be talking to about today is uh, public health. We're going to be talking about research, we're going to talk about nursing, loads of different things at all. So if there's anything that you want to join in on, any questions you want to ask, anything you don't understand, just let us know. And the quickest way to do that is either comment on the Facebook live feed or um, go onto Twitter and use the hashtag MHTV and we'll try and insert your questions as we go. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Okay, Amrit, you've had um, a really interesting career, so I'm going to let you um, introduce yourself. I think you do a better job of it than I can. <laughs> hi, hi, everyone. Thanks, first of all, to Nikki and uh, Vanessa for getting me on tonight. Uh, my name's Amrit Kaur-Kerber. Um, background, I, I worked, I, I was very fortunate to complete my nursing studies degree uh, back in 2016. I then uh, went into uh, health protection uh, for a brief stint, and I'm now currently conducting my PhD uh, in public health. But we can go into a bit more detail uh, later on, but that's just a slight, quick, quick background uh, regarding my career up until now. Yeah, that's great. Um, and tonight, um, we were saying that tonight you're here um, to talk about public health from a variety of perspectives in terms of the research that you've been doing, your work as a nurse, and um, and also um, some of your um, background from a broader level looking at research in nursing and some of the um, broader, broader um, opportunities really for nurses. Um, I'm wondering if we should start really with um, a little bit of um, an outline of your career today because I think people who are listening would be really interested in it. It's only quite recently that we've really seen public health on the agenda and I think for people listening it would be really good to know a little bit about how you got where you are now if that's okay. Perfect. Um, well, I initially, once I completed my nursing studies degree, I was really fortunate to go into community public health, uh, district nursing and during that time, I, I then decided to undertake the Masters in Public Health. I, and this was because, unfortunately, during my undergraduate degree, I was only exposed to public health during one module, which was an optional module at that. And it really did spur my interest uh, in this field, specifically how there's so many different determinants that impact on health and how a lot mm. of these determinants are often put to the side. Um, yeah. So after I'd uh, finished my undergraduate degree when I was working as a community public health nurse I undertook the master's in public health at the same time mm -hmm. um, and that was to that was to predominantly gain the skills I need, would need to conduct robust transparent and informative research I am following on from that I, I my, in terms of my research outputs I, I did a piece of work as part of my master's that was looking at the relationship between uh, organisational stressors in the police force and its relationship uh, to their, uh, police mental wellbeing. And this was a systematic review. Uh, it was published last year and I was very fortunate to present this at the International uh, Law Enforcement and Public Health Conference in Toronto, which wouldn't have been possible had I not received support uh, from the Royal College of Nursing Foundation, who actually provided me with an educational grant 
to attend the conference. I, and I was very fortunate to also receive input from Public Health England to be able to attend as I was currently working with them at the time. Yeah. Uh, so following on from that, I, I actually received an RCN Impact Award because of the work I, and, and, and then the reach it, it actually went to in terms of being able to disseminate the findings to an international audience. Yeah, it was most definitely an intimidating experience. I hate to say mm -hmm. least. I, it was something that I kicked myself and over and over again, wondering why I decided to commit to getting a grant to be able to attend. But it was most definitely one of the most um, beneficial experiences of my career today. And I think one of the key messages there was I initially thought something was impossible, and I then yeah. out to other nurses, other senior nurses in my department. And it was them that put me in touch with various individuals and said, have you tried this? Have you tried this? And I exacerbated so many routes to try and ascertain funding. And it essentially ended up being a colleague who worked for the RCN who managed to get my case put forward. Um, I was very lucky, really lucky there. I, really yeah. I think it just, I don't know about yourselves, but I think situations like that really just make you feel very humble about the community we can have as nurses in terms of the support we can offer each other. Uh, which was great and following on from that I, I was fortunate to secure a role in Public Health England in one of the London Health Protection teams as a health protection nurse I, and that later I was the button for punishment and I then went into research as lead research a nurse for a joint collaborative study with Public Health England and Imperial College which looked at a group strep transmission in school and nursery settings and then my was obviously I'd, I'd caught the research bug and I was applied for a studentship at the Medical Research Council's Social and Public Health Science Unit, which I was really fortunate to, to be granted and that's what I'm currently doing now. Um, and I think with, with regards to the COVID-19 pandemic that we've all been faced with, I've been, uh, for the past few months, I've been uh, working uh, to support Public Health Scotland uh, with their COVID-19 response to that. Um, and I think just before we move forward with the, with the conversations today, I just want to highlight that all views are both are my own I, and they won't be affiliated to any organisation I've worked for previously or currently. Yeah, thank you for that. So many questions that I've got to ask you. Based on what you've just said, I'm not really sure where to start, but I guess um, what really interests me is, um, and I guess what uh, I think is an important message for people to listen in, listen is that, a lot of nurses have imposter syndrome, I would say, particular female nurses. And you've talked yourself there about how you never expected um, your work to reach an international audience. So first of all, I'm really interested in knowing um, what tips you've got for nurses and also what would be your message for nurses who don't feel that they're good enough um, to get involved in research, who don't feel that they're good enough to do high profile work. What message would you give nurses who are listening tonight? I would say, first and foremost, don't put barriers in place based on your pre-existing thoughts or pre-existing situations you've been in. I was very much that person wherein I assumed, based on people before me, that things weren't possible. And I think in terms of what I mentioned earlier with the first the RCN grant that I got, it's actually just putting yourself out there. It's realising that your education and academic ability that you build on is so crucial to what you do. But you need to use that in, in, in combination with actually speaking to other nurses, speaking to other healthcare professionals, seeing what else is out there. And yes, it does involve a bit of work. Don't get me wrong, it doesn't fall on your lap. You need to invest the time 
but it's knowing that once you do invest that time, there are outcomes and they're not they're not that far away. They're just there. It just involves that initial step to take. Um, and it's 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 funny. It's, I think some people always think that the term networking can be quite a cold term and that you're just using people. But it's not it, when when I say network, it's it's seeing how you can help someone and they then help you and you bring the skills together. I, I think that's the way to look at it as a student, especially as we move forward to having more academically trained nurses. When they commenced, for example, when I went into practice, there was always this, it was almost like a conflict between people that had been trained in the hospital and academic nurses. You had the Project 2000 as well, similar, similar sort of yes. idea. And it's realizing that you always have something to offer. When you, yeah. you have a mentor that's been in a, a position for 15 years, I can give an example actually, when I was in my fourth year placement, I had a very an inspiring mentor to be fair, and she was a she was very knowledgeable in her areas. But she struggled with revalidation and the documents that needed completed. I was quite good in the computer, but I was terrible at wound management. And collectively, mm. it was seeing how can we help one another. And I think mm. it's that approach and it's that mindset. It's going into a situation and saying, right, I may be a student, but I have something to offer, and. With that, you you feel a bit you have a bit more confidence in you to say, right, I have something up to offer, I have something to bring to the table. How can we help each other? And yeah. that's key, uh, key to, to anyone, not just student nurses, uh, but to anyone that's both starting their career. It's realizing that your life is, and this this may sound sound very badly, but it's something I hold dearly. But your life is ten percent opportunity and ninety percent what you do with it. I and yeah. I think something that students really need to, to pull into their into their mindset, especially moving forward, especially with the challenging environments that we are facing just now, is to see, right, how can you leverage what you have and, and use it to its best potential? Yeah, I totally agree. It's really important. You mentioned mentorship there, and that's so important. If um, Where did you, how did you manage to access a mentor? Um, what would be your advice about where to look for a mentor? So my within your placements, obviously you're assigned a mentor, and there they're normally quite they're not normally great. I, but when I started my working role, it was actually a piece of advice someone else gave me. They said, just make sure when you get into the job, try and find someone. It's not your manager, maybe an informal mentor. It's also a heavily pushed in a lot of organisations, especially in research units that you have a mentor, just someone you can speak to informally should you need any guidance. Um, in this situation, I was actually recommended to speak to a certain individual and I went up to this individual at the first conference that I had, first, work, first working for Public Health England. And again, I was terrified, but at mm. the same time, I also didn't, didn't realise the level of seniority this person had to yeah. too, much, too much nervousness. Um, but it, I think, as I said, it's just stepping at your comfort zone. It really is. You make that initial step, yes, it's daunting, it's not the nicest experience, but you've done it and you can look back and say, had I not had that conversation, where would I be now? Yeah. Um, I think we put too much emphasis on exams. We put too much emphasis on grades. There's a lot of other things in life that will, will predominantly will have a significant effect on your career and your personal life going forward. And it's just actually making that initial contact with someone and reaching out. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. Nikki, um, anything? No, I completely agree. I completely agree. And I don't even think it makes so much difference what stage of your career you're at. I mean, you've got this sorted as a student. Clearly, you're very smart. <laughs> I was still faffing around 
way <laughs> into my career, absolutely terrified to ask other nurses for help and support, yeah. which was really strange because the minute I asked, everything changed. The minute I said, I don't know how to do this or can you help me or um, I'd really like to write something, people stopped what they were doing. Every every stage of my career, when I've asked somebody, they've either said, oh, I'm not the person to help you, but I know who can. And I, I think it's really um interesting that we have this kind of well I did this negative self-talk that we just assume that something's not possible and the limitations are with ourselves because I know every time a student has asked me for something I've I've hooked them up connected them or helped them and I always think why didn't you all ask yeah I That's agree really, yeah hmm. I mean I've never I've never had like one specific mentor I remember a period where I did look for a particular mentor and I couldn't find anybody who offered everything that I wanted in one package. So um, like, like you both said, really, I leveraged um, my um, sort of social media networks, I would say. And, and like Nikki, if I've got a particular need or, um, you know, I'm stuck on something, I, I always kind of look around and think, right, who's the best person to help me with this? So mm. I think you know, people are willing to help each other and and I love being able to connect with other people as well. If I have a conversation with someone and I think, oh, actually, I know somebody else who'd be really interested in that. Mm. I do, you know, I do make the effort to, you know, to send emails and introduce mm. people. And I think yeah, you've got to really create important. the world that you want to live in, haven't you, really? And I think Emma yeah. was bang on when she was saying, um, come to the table with something to offer. You know, because there's a big difference, isn't there, between someone saying, can you give me this? Can you give me this? Can you give me that? And someone saying, how can I help? Yeah. One of the things I also need is this. It's very different, isn't it? If you're actually um, working together, then actually just withdrawing. But it's it's the same thing, isn't it? You see it all the time on on shifts and in classrooms. There's always someone who puts their hand up, and the first question is, "When do we finish?" Like, mm, save that one. <laughs> save that yeah. one till a couple of people have asked something about the session. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. so yeah, getting back to Amrit's career. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I just, I think, I think it's, I just, I completely agree I, with, with everything you both said, and even with Vanessa, what you're saying, it's, we've got social media now, we have mm-hmm. at our fingertips, so even if you are slightly apprehensive to engage in one-to-one communication, you have social media as a resource, which is so beneficial now when you consider the different personalities that exist, I, and it really here for everyone, but I don't know, I think it's even after my initial conversation with Nikki, after I spoke to you, I said, you know what, I don't think I'm ever going to not speak to her. Like you just have, I think when you make that initial contact with someone, you find it on the ground and that's, that's it. That is it. And I think it's that initial conversation, putting yourself out there. And I think with student nurses, we really need to start being more collective. We need to come together now. We really do, especially at moments like this, during the pandemic, post the pandemic. Now is the time for us to collectively come together and actually have our voices heard. And if we don't actually find a way to come together, nothing's going to change. Personally, I feel I think we really need to have mm. a solid workforce um, that that works works together well. I and essentially, if we can do that, then I feel like we're we're winning. We're winning half the battle. I yeah. to be honest. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's much more focus now, isn't there? On um, you know, working across the system, certainly, you know, when I did my training, it was very siloed and you didn't even speak to somebody in another trust in the same city. Um, whereas now we've got much more kind of systems approaches to leadership, haven't we? And it's much more encouraged. But I do think that there's still a lot of silos um, that go on out there in nursing. So I think these conversations are really important, aren't they, for people to see what the potential is. 
I think um, public health-wise, certainly you mentioned Project 2000. That's what I did in the early 90s. And, um, We're and so old. Health, I know, I'm an old woman. <laughs> yes. Well, um, yes, I am old, Nikki. I did it but, too. <laughs> <laughs> did you do Project 2000 yeah. as well? Yes, I did. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just well lit. Revelation. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, talking public public health, um, I think Project 2000, I don't remember co- covering um, public health. And I know when I qualified, I went to work in acute mental health. It wasn't something that I thought about. I was, I've always been very interested in sociology. So I've always been really passionate about inequality, but I didn't link the two. It was much later in my career that I became aware of public health. And I know things are changing, but I guess for people listening, um, and particularly the Facebook community who might not even be from health circles, how would you describe um, what public health is and why nurses should get more involved in the public health agenda and indeed the public as well? So similar to what similar to yourself, Vanessa, I was only first of all only offered an optional module in public health during my undergraduate degree, and it was that initial exposure that really captured my interest. And all I, I wish I could just show you. So you've got the dull green and white head model of mm. of the social. I'll tweet it. Health. It really shows well. If anyone's interested in public health, that's the best resource I would be to look at first and foremost. Because it really just shows how you've got the individual and you've got various different personal, family, societal factors that influence the well-being of that individual. And it really does, I think it's it's something that for me is health. Like we look at all the different factors that, that help someone function in terms of their bodily functions, their mental functions, etc. And these determinants essentially all link into someone's well-being. So if we can begin to educate people on all of these determinants and the ways in which they can influence someone's well-being, that then allows us to put in appropriate interventions to prevent mm-hmm. someone from becoming unwell, and for, to prevent someone from suffering from a long-term condition for periods and periods of time. And I think with, with public health, we need to, with the way it works is comprised in healthcare is that you've got health protection, you've got health improvement, and then you've got service delivery. And, and my my area of expertise that I went down was health protection, mm-hmm. uh, and health protection is considered more reactive work. So you're responding to incidents, whereas you've got health improvement that tends to focus on prevention. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got your obesity, etc., that will tend to fall into health improvement. Whereas health protection is looking at infectious diseases, it's looking at chemical radioactive hazards to health and major emergencies. So for a given example, health protection would have been or were heavily involved in handling the reactive response to Grenfell Tower, for example, and that would be on the air pollution factor. And then health protection would be heavily involved in managing infectious diseases. So within the UK, we've got a a list of notifiable infectious diseases that by law need to be reported. Um, and need to be recorded on, and then that would then allow a health protection team, say they were notified of a measles case, they would then be able to follow up that measles case, identify all the contacts through contact tracing, then ensure mm-hmm. that that individual is given the appropriate treatment or prophylaxis that they would need. So it is, I think that one of the things that was quite, I don't want to say good about the pandemic, but one thing that was good about the Ebola 2014 outbreak, the measles 2018 outbreak, was that it really raised the profile of health protection teams so that people began to become more aware of them 
and what they were yeah. doing and the specialist expertise that they have uh, and they hold. And I think moving forward, they, they will, I think, especially post-COVID-19, they will gain an increasing profile. I, but I think with that, we then need to begin to think about if this is going to be a central focus of healthcare moving forward, as we see threats begin to change from metamethyls to microbes, we need to make sure our nurses are well placed to be able to handle these incidents. And I think, I don't know if we're going to speak about education going forward, but one of the, the central um, messages that I communicated in the discussion piece with the Nursing Times was to ensure that we really begin to think about how we can pull health protection training into the nursing curriculum, undergraduate curriculum. I, and I don't know if you want me to go into a bit more detail now, I'm happy to pick up on it later, but... Yeah, yeah, I'm happy for us to go straight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Nikki will probably want to chip in to accept this bit, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> Do your best, Amrit, and I'll try and jump in. I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think one of the biggest telltale was, to be perfectly honest, I will be frank, I didn't know health protection teams existed until mm. I applied for the job. That was yeah. when I knew what a health protection nurse could do. And mm. that was, it was, it was mind-boggling when I started the role because I was like, wow, this exists, this speciality exists. But yeah. it was also terrifying because I also realised how little knowledge I had from my undergraduate training to be able to tackle an issue that was actually being dealt with with it, but was being handled by predominantly nurses yeah. and, and doctors. And I think an interesting thing as well that's quite nice uh, about the health protection teams is that they are multidisciplinary teams. You've got nurses, you've got doctors, you've got biomedical scientists that all come together and they all collectively contribute to the same cause and their voices are heard on an equal platform. Mm. Uh, which is sometimes very rare in healthcare. Uh, yeah. so for, I think that's another another very interesting thing is that you have input from different specialties and different professionals from different backgrounds. I uh, and then you're 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 out and you see the outcomes that you can produce as a result of that. Um, I think one of the, the the key the key reasons for bringing health protection training into an undergraduate program, when we think about the student nurses that may be deployed to assist with the COVID response the limitations in their knowledge is now beginning to start the surfacing. We can see through surveys, yeah. etc., that they feel uncomfortable going into these environments because of the lack of knowledge. And that's just not restricted to student nurses. That's mm. registration nurses that are vocalising that. So I think yeah. straight away we can see that we we need to have student nurses that at a student level and post-registration are able to liaise with health protection teams so that they can assist and facilitate pathogen identification by providing appropriate treatment and preventing further infections. Mm -hmm. And the only way for us to do this is if there's an investment made in the nursing profession at an undergraduate level to ensure that they have the, 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 the skills and knowledge on the notifiable infectious disease that exist. Their symptoms, their modes of transmission, how do they break the chain of infection? I, all of these factors. I, and I, I feel that this, this training shouldn't be reserved for post-registration. It should be something that we should really be thinking about pulling in as soon as possible at an undergraduate level. And when we think about all the, 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 the mass vaccination campaigns that have come to a halt because of COVID-19, 
we're going to potentially see a rapid increase in the number of other infectious diseases as a result of this, such as measles. And yeah. we're going to need nursing support to be able to handle that. And with the anticipated COVID-19 vaccination campaigns, we want nurses to be well-placed to lead on the delivery of those campaigns. And we can't expect them to do that without an investment in knowledge. I think, sorry for the long-winded long-winded answer, but um, I think that was one of the key messages that I was communicating with Nice, and it's something that I, I resonates quite closely to myself and something that I do feel we should be definitely pushing forward. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think COVID, um, one positive about COVID is it's made people much more aware hasn't it? I mean, I know um, a few years ago, I used to be a lead nurse and have responsibility for infection control across the directorate. And it was very, very difficult, um, you know, from a, pra a practice and leadership point of view to get people engaged in infection control as an agenda generally, and infection prevention um, in particular. And um, and I guess now it's on everybody's minds, isn't it? Because of, because of COVID-19, not just nurses, but the public as well and um, it'd be quite interesting to see how that's going to shape um, education and practice and you know what people are asking for in terms of their development um, and in terms of the public what the public are asking for because I think there's a role of the public isn't there as well to challenge nurses and to challenge the NHS um, around around these issues and I think you know in the weeks months ahead we're going to be relying on um, the public as well um, I think you know in terms of, I'm just thinking about, you know, my mum, I think I mentioned this in the last week's episode, but my mum travels by bus. And if somebody gets on a bus without a mask, my mum challenges the bus driver, um, you know, and, um, and and this is it. We're relying on the public, aren't we? We can't be out there doing everything ourselves, but we're relying on the public. And, uh, and certainly, you know, ed from an education point of view, and I know Nikki will want to come in in a minute on this, I'm sure. Um, it, I can really see how it's going to influence the development of education in the future for nurses and, and mental health nurses as well. You know, we're not just talking about adult nurses here, are we? We're talking about the nursing workforce generally. Um, so before I ramble on any further, Nikki, um, do you want to come in from an educator's perspective? I think the things that really are concerned to me at the moment is the fact that the sort of community situation that we're working in is different now. So in the past, I think people, and, and, and I don't think it was necessarily better, people would um, just automatically believe a doctor. They would automatically um, take on board um, a message that a professional gave. And, and I think it's really healthy that people are more questioning now. But I do worry that when we do get a vaccine, um, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are very anxious about taking vaccines in a way that they weren't maybe 10 years before, maybe before yeah. we had the, the measles issues. Um, and when I talk about issues, I don't think there's anything wrong with the vaccine. Before somebody was allowed to publish that, publish an article that basically killed people. So that's my stance <laughs> on it. But you know me, I don't hold back. <laughs> but I think there's there's something around the fact that there's so many people now that are kind of tied up in anxiety about safety around vaccinations um, who don't necessarily listen straight away to the science. I think that there's a, a much lower literacy level of understanding around um, science issues generally and I have to say I was saying to you guys before we, we came on air I had my first person shout at me in the street for wearing a mask and I'd, I'd seen it on you know social media and I was aware that some people were being angry with other people who, who chose to wear a face mask 
Um, but it had never happened to me before. And I was honestly quite taken yeah. aback. We didn't have a chat about it. I, neither of us changed our opinion, but I think that's the world we're living in at the moment. And I think it's, it's not just about how do we get health information out, it's about how do we get mm-hmm. people and, and, and for people to follow it. It's about how do we get people to believe it? And, you know, how do we make sure that the information that we give is clear and correct? Mm. I think it's yeah. just difficult. It's difficult to make, I think, in terms of belief, I think in order to get someone to believe, they have to believe in the overarching system and the way it works. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. there's too many links between different organisations, the government, etc., which creates confusion, I think, for the general mm-hmm. public. And I completely agree with what you're saying in terms of the dissemination of information that's understandable to everyone. That's something that I feel we could 100% be really working on right now when we think about individuals with low health literacy, people with low dibs, with no digital literacy at all, when we think about individuals that don't hold like English as a first language, for example. Yeah. We don't, we don't really, we sometimes, we sometimes are really bad in that we see the population as being the exact same. We forget that there's so many different communities that exist. And when I think one of the things I mentioned in the paper is when we think about our district nurses, they're so well placed because they understand the patients. They get given the time to understand the patients. We should be drawing upon district nurses and community nurses to, 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 to bridge and strengthen the links they have with community institutions, religious groups, because it'll be them that then provide the information to these individuals in a format they can understand. And it will be, be these trusted individuals that then disseminate the information to wider communities. Mm. And I think one of the one of the biggest lessons learned for myself actually with the 2018 nasal outbreak was how effective that strategy is. When you engage with individuals that are within the community, it really does help to reduce the fear and stigma they experience around yeah. the issues. And if they've got someone that they feel comfortable talking to, whether that be a nurse or a religious leader or a community leader. Those questions don't they don't remain unanswered. They get a response. And I think the more we can answer people's questions in a format they can understand, the closer we are to building that relationship of trust, the closer we are to, to helping them understand the benefits of vaccination and why they should be considering vaccination. And I think that's something as well that is heavily falls under the role the, the remit of health protection as well um, in, in informing individuals of the benefits of vaccination. But again, I don't want to thought, I don't want to um, I don't want to think about too to fall too much into this, this specific topic, but if we think about our for instance language translations, we hold that I think one in eight NHS staff hold the non-British nationality. And with that we have a wealth of resource and we should be harnessing the talent that exists in the NHS, especially right. during periods of crisis right now where we may not have interpreters yeah. and translators that are available. So I think one of the suggestions was to create a register of bilingual nurses and other healthcare staff that we can draw upon, not only during a periods of crisis, but routine care. And then we yeah. can ensure that we are actually putting in place everything we can as a healthcare service to ensure patients understand. And then when they say no, at least we know they understand fully what the answer yeah. is and what the information is. Yeah. I have got a couple of questions that come through. Mm-hmm. Um, have a drink, see which ones you fancy answering. <laughs> so, um, the first one is, um, big news this week was that Public Health England is facing big changes. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
I'm probably quite glad that you work in Scotland, I would imagine. It's one of those thoughts. Um, there's another one saying, um, Amrit, you said about um, health protection teams were given higher profile because of Ebola. Did we come to COVID with a well-restored system? If not, why do you think that was? Bit leading, but I can see where they're going. <laughs> Sorry, I missed the end of that one. Sorry. Yeah, basically they were saying, did we come to COVID with a well-resourced system? Because because Ebola went reasonably well for us. So yeah. they're saying, um, did that make a make a difference? I think I'll start with the second one, Nikki, and that was fine. So I was speaking to someone about this earlier on today. Um, when when Ebola, Ebola happened, so in 2014, they it was it obviously affected the West Indies. It wasn't an international, it didn't spread internationally. And with yeah. that, people weren't affected on a one-to-one basis. Not everyone in the world was affected by it. So when we think about people stimulating change, you tend to have to have quite a collective response to be able to make action happen. You have to have quite a lot of people affected. I don't want to get into the technicalities of it, eh, but in my mm-hmm. opinion regarding that, I feel that we could have done a lot better. We could have learned a lot more from 2014 of all the outbreaks. I do think we did put measures in place. I, we obviously, back in 2004, we had the health protection team that were put in place and we began to build on that post Ebola. Um, but, and I also do think, actually, when we think about the UK as a whole, we are doing reasonably well compared yeah. to a lot of other countries in terms of the setup of the health protection teams that we have that exist. I'm obviously trying to now further push that and get more people into health protection, to protection work as a priority. I'm, so in responding to your question, I think we can always do better. I, we could, there's always room for improvement. Mm-hmm. In this instance, I definitely feel we can do better. I think moving forward from COVID-19, I I cannot predict what is going to happen, but mm-hmm. I can only do what I can in terms of my contribution and my colleagues that do that same. And we can only just hope that the efforts we're putting towards this will, will stimulate long-term action and long-term change. I hope yeah. that answers your question. Yeah, it does. I think there's it's, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because the uncertainty that we're all in is making people absolutely desperate for answers. But if you don't have the data there, yeah, we can learn lessons retrospectively, but we can't really project them necessarily forward until we almost more data, some more experience. Okay. Absolutely. And I think we need to remember as well, evidence informs policy. That's mm-hmm. a key thing. Evidence, we can have the research, we can have the evidence, but it informs policy. Mm. And so much create policy, and I think mm. that's key to, to to a key factor to remember that we can have the data, we can have the stats, um, but again, it's it's there to inform, and um, it's not mm. to to instruct. Mm, absolutely. And the other question was about Public Health England, and that's I think what people maybe don't necessarily understand is how this setup works. So could you explain, you know, because you're in Scotland, you're doing something completely different to England, and I think a lot of people forget that. So within Public Health England, they have their own uh, contact tracing system. Uh, and within Public Health Scotland, we have our own NHS Scotland uh, test and protect. And the difference between Public Health England and Public Health Scotland it is something that's very difficult to get your head around. Don't quote me. My understanding <laughs> is Public Health England is, well, I know it's, 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 it's an executive body in the Department of Health. Mm-hmm. It's treated as a civil servant when you work for Public Health England. When you work for Public Health in, in Scotland, it's within the NHS. So, yeah, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand how the NHS works very differently across across all the different countries of the UK, and, and they think it that it's really just one thing. It was very difficult, Nikki, when because we were it was very unfortunate because when Public Health Scotland came into play, it was at the start of the pandemic, 
So we never really had the opportunity to mm. explain to the wider population about the changes and what's happening, and that will come with time. I, but they are very they are very separate systems in terms of my opinion of what's happening in public health England as it stands. All I can say is that from all my colleagues that work there and the, 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 the utmost effort they have been putting into tackling this pandemic and the hours yeah. they've been working. And I think at the end of the day, my I do I am my frustration does lie with the fact that they are that the, the, we're going into this blame culture, which is not the right direction. I personally feel that again no. it is usually the outcome of most issues. We do go into that blame culture. I mm -hmm. but no I. My opinion on that is that we can't we can't we can't fall into that trap. We need to remember all the individuals that make up that organisation. Every single nurse, every single doctor that has sat and worked to make to, to, to protect the wider population. We can't forget them. Mm. Mm. I think that's absolutely spot on. I think there's something as well. I think about public health and that because it sits um, across communities. Um, it's always kind of prey to kind of social factors, political factors in a way that sometimes um, treatment that's more biomedically based in a weird kind of way, like hospital based stuff. Um, it's seen very much as a health issue quite separately, whereas things like loneliness, poverty, racism, mm -hmm. all those things that impact people's health, they also have a political side to them that's much more apparent for people to see. And so I think a lot of health professionals now are having to get their head around how do I work across health when health is everywhere now it's escaped its boundaries and I think it's a real opportunity to be honest but it is going to require us to get our heads in a slightly different place yeah I think you're right and we've talked a lot haven't we about um communities in terms of our own development we've talked about primary care um and you know really interesting what you were saying about um having a register so nurses and other healthcare professionals can take on the role of interpreting and helping people you know from other cultural groups who don't speak english as a first language to kind of understand and give informed consent and um and that makes me think about the fact that you know, I did some work um, in the northwest in primary care, and it was um, in a community where most of the population spoke Urdu, um, and a lot of people spoke very little English. And just in the few weeks that I worked with um, the GP practices there, I learned so much about how they engaged with their communities. And, um, and yet we don't take that learning and, and apply it to somewhere else. We, um, you know, that that kind of developed, I guess, in that area because there was a particular cultural need. But in an area, for example, I live in York, which is predominantly white. Um, we don't take that learning, do we, um, into other areas? We can't, It's just kind of kept in silos. And I think, you know, we need to, I'm not sure it's a question, but an observation based on what you're saying, that we need to, to look at how we kind of leverage that learning and share it across the system. And I think primary care has got a particular role to play mm. Definitely, definitely. I think we forget, we do forget how close they have, how close they get to get, because the time they have is something I definitely, I miss when you were as a community public health nurse, you had that time with your patients. You were never rushed and it's a yeah. life in itself. Right? And I think because they have that time to develop those relationships, they they begin to, as you said, they, they begin to almost, I don't, when I think about a nurse advocate, I really fundamentally believe we have nurses that nurse advocacy will play a role, sorry, in tackling health inequalities. But 
in order to be an arts advocate, an advocate for your patients, you need to know what you're advocating for. And yeah. for instance, when we think about people living with disabilities, what well, 25% of the population, and we've got, I was speaking to Nikki about this earlier, when we think about the training that's given to adult nurses, children's nurses, etc. I did not get any training on learning disabilities. I had a two-week stint in mental health, and that was it. And one of the, the key things that we've seen with COVID-19 is that people with disabilities have really been left behind. Uh, mm. When we think about uh, measures such as self-isolation and social distancing, they've had an impact on the way people can actually ask access prescriptions, food, etc. And I think this really does just hit home the message that we need to ensure training on physical, mental, intellectual, sensory disabilities fans across all of our nursing programs. Because I mentioned earlier, we've got people that don't speak whole English as a first language, but that's just one of the many vulnerable populations that exist. Mm -hmm. We've got so many. We've got, we've got refugees and migrants, we've got the elderly, yeah. we've got, as I said, we've got individuals with various different disabilities. And until we actually start to ensure our nurses understand what that what, what what these issues are, what the issues are that these individuals are being faced with, we can't expect them to advocate for them. And I think that's the, the crucial message. Like I was I was looking through the new standards in the NMC and it was advocacy was mentioned once or twice and I popped that in the paper because it was it really hit home to me that nurse advocacy is the central is the core to, to a nurse's role. Obviously we're there, we provide clinical input, we provide public health input, mental health input. But we're so well placed to perform that function in terms of our closeness to patients and also our ability to liaise with our health professionals. So I think we, we, one of the, the key things that we really need to do going forward is to pull that knowledge in to, to undergraduate programmes as well. And similar to the register I create, I, I mentioned about the bilingual nurses. Why can't we offer BSL, British Sign Language support, a, a training to nurses at an undergraduate level? Why can't we yeah. offer it as an optional accredited module or as a CPD activity? And then we build on that register of nurses that can provide that level of support, again, during periods of crisis and during routine care. So I think there's just, I know I just keep saying we need to push and push for more education, but I feel that nurses are nurses mm. want that education. I, I feel like mm. they're wanting that knowledge. I, mm. And I think now is the most, the best time, sorry, to evaluate what we're currently offering and what we need to potentially consider bringing into the programme moving forward. Mm. Yeah. Mm. The other thing that strikes me mm. is um, how do we work better with charities as the NHS and the, um, and you know, the voluntary sector? Because surely, you know, charities have got a particular role here at the moment in terms of, you know, their traditional kind of community, community-based focus. And often, you know, it's the sort of voluntary charity sector that kind of know people and work with communities. And I don't think we're very good, are we, within the NHS at working with charities? We say we are. Um, I mean, what's your view on it, Amrit? Have you got any any um, view from a public health perspective? So when I was writing the piece, I was I was I had communications with Inclusion Scotland. I and they really did give me a really solid underpinning of completely the conducted preliminary survey on people with disabilities in Scotland during the COVID-19 pandemic. And they really pulled out a lot of findings to me that just essentially really did fundamentally structure that piece because it allowed me to see, right, what's the problem and how do you address it? But that's from a research perspective. In terms of healthcare, 
I can't really, when I think about the involvement of charities, I can't, and I'll be completely honest, I can't really think of a time that we've had, that well, I personally had to liaise with a charity to get support, or I've mm. had the opportunity to liaise with a charity to get support. And I think that's just based on experience. I think there's yeah. so many communication pathways in a healthcare system, so many people to liaise with, so many stakeholders mm. to get input from. But a lot of the time, these the NGOs get maybe get bypassed and ignored yeah. to some degree. I don't know your what's your experience because it's something that I've not really I guess it's just my opinion. I've not really been involved in anything. I, yeah, I think I think that's the thing for me because I spent many years working for the NHS and then when I went independent, I worked um, more for charities, um, you know, the independent sector. Um, and it gave me a completely different perspective and I had, you know, no idea, um, you know, to be honest with you, um, you know, the work that, you know, and the perspective, you know, much more holistic um, often than the way that we work in the NHS and much more kind of human in the way that they work with people. And um, I just, I don't think I would have had that insight had I not gone to work with different charities. And I'm just really interested in the last couple of years, really, in how we kind of, how we kind of connect the system up better because we talk about it you know we talk all the time don't we about working across the system and you know all the rest of it all the you know current buzz terms that you hear you hear but I'm not sure in reality that we we do it very well um I mean Nikki from an education point of view how does it play out in terms of placements and that kind of thing it's a challenge, isn't it? Well, I was just mm. thinking, when I first came across Amrit was when you wrote the piece for the Nursing Times, which we've just tweeted out, by the way. So everyone who's watching, yeah. please, please, please read that. I mean, it's a really good example. I don't want to make you blush now. but It's a really good example of a nurse leveraging their understanding and their skills in a really clear, organised way to help people. Like, here, here are the problems I'm seeing right now, and here are the things that we can do about it. And it's a really great... Um, piece of writing in that it's clear and direct and really timely because obviously that was the time when everyone was like flailing around going what are we going to do <laughs> it's like here's what we're going to do and here's what we need to do and it was great and I have to say when I saw it that's that's when I started stalking you Amrit <laughs> so I think it's really important that nurses understand their, the power of their voices so you know the things that you were talking about around um skilling nurses up to understand their power um, I think I would I'd really love to hear a little bit more about what you think about that in terms of, you know, how do you get your voice heard and, and what things do you need to think about? I think, first of all, that that piece was, honestly, it was an academic rant to three people before I put it in the paper. I, I was, it was just, it was frustration in terms of what I was seeing. And it was seeing, it was just me preemptively seeing how is this going to pan out? And essentially, what was really upsetting is that what I wrote actually began to surface, it began to happen, you began to see it all happening, it began to get reported in the media. And I think if I'm giving a message to any nurses or student nurses right now, it's it's really don't undervalue research. Please make time for it. Like take time to actually understand the journal paper, understand the format. It's not the nicest thing to read, but you will find going forward, it's the thing that you will actually go to anytime you're faced with a scenario. If you want to be able to get a conclusion or a solution to something. You need to draw on something that's evidence-based and that is where your understanding of research comes in but to move away from the, the boring elements of reading papers the, the one thing that it really did it, it did for me was it gave me the ability to think a lot more critically about what i was doing 
because when you were reading different sources of information, you began, you began to think, wait a minute, what's right here? Why is that person saying that? Why is that person saying that? You dig a bit deeper and you try and come to a conclusion that's actually reached and makes, it makes, some, makes some sense to you. Um, and I think with that, it's quite, I remember actually having a conversation after my undergraduate degree and I got so excited about research. I'd done my dissertation and then it was, in hindsight, when I look back, it was pathetic, but it, at the time it was the best thing since sliced bread. And I got really interested in research and I spoke to a woman, a nurse, sorry, who went on to do her PhD. And I asked her, because she didn't use her doctor title. I said, why don't you use your doctor title? And she said, I, the other, I felt the other nurses didn't really like it. And that was the nail on the head for me. We as nurses really put our own, we put a limit in place. We do, we put it there, no one else puts it there. We just put, we, we, we basically, we, we register as a nurse and we say to ourselves, right, this is it. It's ourselves that put those limitations in based on what we've seen or we've heard. And I think we're honestly, you, you can be capable of anything. You just need to make sure that you actually, you speak to the right individuals. You just keep reading, keep reading and keep learning and keep exposing yourself to situations that you may not necessarily like and they may make you feel uncomfortable, but mm. you'll come back um, they will come back uh, with, death, with clear benefits uh, to, to yourself. And I know I'm coming across very confident and whatever, whatever I am coming across, but this was this, I, I was a novice nurse and I still feel like a novice nurse. I still go into rooms every single day feeling like a complete imposter um, about what I'm talking about. And it's it's a feeling that will never go away. I think I, I think it is just a feeling that you do have, that you, you constantly want to do better. But I think, as nurses, the, the, the sky is the limit, and I think you can't let anyone else tell you anything else. You need to just have that in your mind. You can reach what you want to reach. You don't need to stay static at band five. You can do a band, become a band eight. You just need to put time in and the effort, and you'll get there. And I think now it's nice because we're seeing that change. We're seeing nurses going to be senior positions. We're seeing nurses going to academia. They're going into research. I never thought that a studentship would get offered to me as a nurse. If I'm being completely honest, we're seeing things change. I, yeah. So mm. the best bit of advice I can give you is bridge, build your networks and build on your ability to think critically because when you do that, it gives you the opportunity to feel that you've got that voice. So if you can yeah. do I think that's the best thing. I only, You only feel that you've got a voice when you've actually looked at all the facts because you're so, you're so worried about vocalising what you feel. So I think that's the best piece of advice. Just keep reading and start to be, start to gain a, a better understanding of research because moving forward, I think it will begin to be a crucial element of nursing practice uh, as, yeah. we, as we move forward, especially with health protection mm. um, and the new threats that we're unfortunately facing. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm conscious that we're, we're coming to the end, but I think what you've just mm. been saying is uh, is really important and i'm wondering for people listening whether you'd have any advice or any resources that you could point nurses towards who are interested in getting involved in research in terms of research well, first of all my twitter is there so if anyone wants to speak with me i'm more than happy uh, to talk because i've definitely have definitely been tweeting a lot of people to get help in the past um, mm. and in terms of resources i would definitely recommend obviously for the queen's nursing institute You've also got your Royal, Royal College of Nursing Foundation uh, and you're in the, obviously the AMC. 
I would definitely say if you are in a position where you want to do further education or you want to perhaps do a course that you may not have funding for, there's various different uh, people you can you can reach out to. You've also got the Churchill Institute and you've also got uh, the foundation that I applied to. So the Royal College of Nursing Foundation offers a variety of grants, educational grants, support grants, etc. And it's essentially just putting down a proposal as to why you want it, how it can benefit your practice and your development going forward, and what you feel you would you would get out of it. It's not it's not a it's not a real it's not a tiresome process. It just involves you taking a bit of time to write that down. I yeah. have things all the time, but again, it's Google is Google can be a godsend sometimes. Honestly, you can type in nursing support, nursing funding, a lot of things will come up, and it's just a case of putting in a bit of additional effort, but you will find something. I, and again, if you don't find it online, speak to the nurses that you work with, or even reach out to nurses in the area that you want to perhaps do a bit of research in and get their opinion. Because as I said, the, the, the thing that worked for me and the thing that I feel has really contributed to any output I've managed to produce has been the conversations I've had with the nurses that I've worked with and the health yeah. professionals that I've worked with. It's been them, it's been their introductions, it's been their support, and it's been their knowledge that has really helped me uh, to build the confidence, first of all, to actually want to be able to vocalise my opinions and feel that they can be put on paper. So if for any nurse, I definitely say just, yeah, academics are important, but think about the people you're working with and the people that you want to work with and bridge those relationships uh, and keep working on them. Yeah, great. Um, Nikki, any um, before we finish, I'm conscious I know we've had such a fascinating conversation and we've covered yeah. some, and I can't believe that yeah. we're coming to the end already. So I just want to squeeze yeah. any final comments in from Nikki or from okay. coming on social media before we finish. Yeah, we we did have one question in under the line. So, um, what are Amrit's views about making sure health warnings are spread to all ethnic? Grounds and what improvements would she recommend or, or suggest? So you did touch on that a little bit. But um, you could also come back and that's on, it looks like that's on um, Facebook Live. So you could always um, comment on that later if you wanted to. Yeah. I'll email it to you the, so you the have paper, it. Yeah, if, if the, I'd advise to read the paper because the, the paper really does answer that question well in terms because that was one of the primary focuses was how to Brilliant. make sure that I, yeah. accessible information is to everyone. In. So the, the paper has been tweeted out under the hashtag MHTV. Please, please read that. Um, and also you can follow us back and ask any questions if we haven't got around to anything. But for me, I think what I've really taken from this session that I absolutely love is what I was saying about, you know, I knew something was wrong. I felt something was wrong. I was having this furious argument. And then it turned into a really important article that obviously tons of people have read. And then you never know the impact that you will have on somebody else when you write something like that. But also as a reader of other people's work and other people's nursing knowledge but celebrate it you know I think there's nothing other than you know, the story you were saying about the nurse who achieved a doctorate and then felt embarrassed to say that you know when yeah. my friends are doctors I call them doctor all the time I love it because when one of us rises we all rise you know and right. when our knowledge is enriched and we create learning and nursing theory and nursing knowledge it only benefits everybody so for mm. me there's something about being a really good colleague you know, and not just pretending to read your friends' articles, blogs, but actually doing it, <laughs> retweeting it, thanking people, all that kind of stuff. You know, celebrate each other. It's a really yeah. good thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's 
I mean, I think for me, obviously, you know, I've learned a lot about, um, you know, the work that you're doing um, and particularly, you know, around COVID. But I think like Nikki, um, you know, some broader um, reflections really about, um, you know, you've had a really inspiring journey and you've done some really amazing things, but you've also made it seem really accessible as well. And I think, you know, for nurses listening, the importance of the fact that, um, you know, we've all got a voice and we need to use it and we need to all be contributing to research and, you know, driving nursing forward and, uh, you know, having a place at the table, so to speak. And, um, and and the importance, which Nikki's alluded to just now as well, of us all working together, really, and, you know, breaking down this kind of competitive kind of element that can happen sometimes in nursing and across professions and us all working together more collaboratively and thinking about you know what we can achieve together if we're able to do that I think it's really important so yeah I mean I've it's been great I've learned so much tonight and um and I kind of sense that the conversation might continue as well um, you know and it, you know if we can share the links and you know encourage further conversation I think and hopefully inspire some people to um to think about, um, you know, moving into that kind of research space and public health, that would be really great. Um, and I think on that note, um, Amrit, do you want to have um, any final comments from you before we finish? No, just thank you very much for, for the opportunity to speak. I, and I guess, you just, I guess, just as, as Nikki and Nikki and we both just said, I, we need to do this together. We yeah. Need to for each other. We, I think that's key right now. We're really well pleased to to move forward right now. I think if we can actually just bring that together and again, I mentioned networking, but we've got social media now. So yeah. we can all do it. We really can, we've got no excuse. Yeah. Um, and on that note, as I said, my Twitter's there. So if anyone wants to speak about anything or you want a bit more information or if you want a bit more support, I'm more than happy uh, to get uh, to respond and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. That's okay, great. looks like we're ready to finish then. Thank you. And we'll be back next time. Good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye.